Come gather round the campfire and hear our ghostly tales of chilling terrors, darkest woes, and anything that goes bump in the night. So cuddle up with your best friend or dare it alone. The darkness is closing in and spirits are calling your name. This is Fireside Phantoms. you do holly if someone literally vanishes right in front of your eyes i'd probably pee myself a little bit <laughs> i i think i would just pinch myself to see if it was a dream and then i'd run screaming when i realized it wasn't a dream <laughs> i would be really freaked out i don't even know i would probably think that i was crazy i would probably probably mm -hmm. think that i there was something wrong with me that i was something was off yeah yeah that somebody slipped you a pill in your drink <laughs> or that I have some kind of mental illness that was causing me to see shit that wasn't there. <laughs> That's well, probably what I would think. There is a lot of stories out there, and I have a couple of really bizarre stories. Most of these disappearances seem to have a paranormal twist, which some may even call time slips. But I'm hmm. sure that, you know, we can also come up with some alternative theories. But these stories are enough to make me want to have a tracking device put on me and all my loved ones. Oh, wow. Okay. In 1815, a prison in Poland had a prisoner, Deteristi, who was serving time there because he was caught assuming a man's identity after he had died from a stroke. One day, the prisoners all chained together were out taking a walk for their afternoon exercise. Deteristi was among the prisoners, and as they were walking, several prisoners noticed Deteristi was losing color and getting quite pale. Then his stripes on his outfit began to disappear. <laughs> this progressed until he became more and more transparent. And finally, Deteristi vanished, leaving only his glasses, clothes, and ankle cuffs all in a pile on the ground. Do you think he was a ghost from the get-go and they just arrested him? And then he was like, yeah, I don't have to stay here. I'm a ghost. I'm going to just fade away. I don't know. I love this story because of all the witnesses who swore seeing this happen. Hmm. Several guards even saw it happen because it was such a gradual process. And I keep thinking, you know, how cool would that be? You're a prisoner and you just get a free out of jail card just like that. <laughs> no wonder, time served. I wonder, did they say that like they, when they were looking at him, knows that he was fading away? Did he look freaked out? Like, what is happening to me? Or was he yeah. more like, yeah, baby, I'm out of here. <laughs> I, don't, I think it was just like normal everyday walking for him. And it was yeah. other people that were just seeing him slowly fading away. He was like, the mothership is beaming me up. Here I go. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So I have another story. Okay. Uh, this one took place in June of 1968. Gerald I. Potter boarded a DC-3 plane on his way to a conference with his wife and 23 other passengers from Kankakee, Illinois, en route to Dallas, Texas. At some point during the flight, Gerald got up to use the bathroom at the back of the plane. He took such a long time in returning that his wife asked a flight attendant if she could check on him as she was growing concerned that something was very wrong. A short time later, the pilot noted a caution light coming on in the cockpit, which registered there was an issue with the plane. The co-pilot was sent out to search the plane of the issue. However, the pressure inside the cabin was unchanged, 
and checking all the doors and windows, they saw that all of them remained tightly sealed. Upon checking the bathroom, the flight attendant confirmed also that there was nobody in the bathroom and Gerald didn't seem to be seen by anyone leaving the commode. The flight attendant quietly informed the pilot of the situation and discovered that the door by the bathroom had a chain across it, which was now laying on the floor. So they decided to make an emergency landing in Springfield, Missouri, and upon landing, the pilot announced that all the passengers would need to stay until they had thoroughly searched the plane, including the cargo hold. But Gerald was never found. Do you think he got sucked out of the, the toilet? Well, that's what I think. Have you ever <laughs> used a toilet in the plane? Oh, yeah. Many times. It's such powerful suction, I feel like my bottom is getting going to just be whooshed away. They even searched the entire flight path for evidence of a body. Perhaps he had fallen, but nothing came of the search. Some theories suggest Gerald opened the door at the tail of the plane accidentally by leaning on it. But the handle would have to be purposely turned 180 degrees, and any opening of the door would have caused serious issues for the plane and would have been noticed by someone. When Carrie Potter, Gerald's wife, had been interviewed later about the incident, she wait, 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 you mean Harry Potter? <laughs> You've got to throw a Harry oh, Potter reference in there because you can't nice Harry Potter Holly. and expect us not to say anything about that. <laughs> That's right. Um, AKA, not any relation to Harry <laughs> Potter. Yeah. Gerald's wife had been interviewed later about the incident, and she recalls that when she tried to investigate herself, the co-pilot and flight attendant would not allow her to personally inspect the area. Some other theories is that this was foul play, since he was a city councilman and a co-owner of an insurance business. Perhaps someone had paid off the crew in advance to keep quiet about his disappearance. There was no turbulence or bad weather reported, and unless he thought that door was the bathroom by mistake, then it's a total mystery. Did but they just, check the overhead bins? I mean, maybe he's hiding somewhere. Maybe mm -hmm. he's trying to, like, fake his own disappearance. No, they, they got everyone off the plane, and they did a thorough search, and he was nowhere to be found. That's so weird. I don't mm -hmm. buy the theory that the whole crew was in on it, because that takes too much coordinating and effort to get all those people involved. I think somebody would have talked at some point. Some say an unidentified object was seen flying around the plane and think it might be a UFO incident. But why just the one person sucked out, not the whole plane? All I know is it's just one more reason not to have the fifth cocktail on your flight. And why <laughs> is it that airplanes always put the emergency exit doors right by the bathrooms? It's just not common sense. <laughs> <laughs> Design flaw. So to this day, his remains have never been found. They never found him. It's a complete him. mystery. What year did this happen? Uh, it happened in June of 1968. You think he's D.B. Cooper? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. One of the weirdest stories, though, is about a man in 1954 who arrives in Tokyo on an inbound flight and walks up to a customs counter. He has with him all the necessary paperwork for entering the country, a passport, a driver's license, and he was well-dressed carrying a nice leather briefcase. He spoke fluent French, but he could also speak Japanese and a few other languages, which is not uncommon for a lot of Europeans. He told the custom officials his trip was business travel, and he had come to Japan often, which they could see from all the stamps on his passport, as well as stamps from other nations. But the weirdness starts when they looked at his country of origin, and it stated Torrid. 
So Torrid is spelled T-A-U-R-E-D. My theory is that they got his country of origin messed up with his astrological sign of Taurus. Oh, you would say that because you're a Taurus. That's so right. You go. Taurus rules. Upon further examination in a private room, they closely examined all his documents and they seemed completely legit. He also had currency in his wallet, which also seemed real and had Torrid stamped on the bills. It even said, in bulls we trust. Just kidding. <laughs> nice try. The man said he could easily point out his country to them if they just provided him a map. Showing his disgust at their ignorance, he became very shocked and quiet when the map they offered him in no way was the world he was familiar with. Because oh. Torrid, which is a small country located on the border between France and Spain, was now showing on the map a place called Andorra. He told the officials that Torrid had been around for at least a thousand years and was well known and shown on all the standard maps. He also stated that he was never stopped before when he traveled to Japan and nobody ever questioned his documents. So they decided to check up on some other details of his story. The company he said to be working for did not exist and the company he was going to visit on his trip never had a meeting set up with him. The hotel that he said he was staying at that night and he usually stays at this hotel had no reservation of him or any past reservations under his name. The man got upset and accused the officials of making a joke of him and really thought the whole thing was an elaborate trick to make him feel crazy. He was allowed to stay at the airport hotel in a room courtesy of the airport until the man could call the embassy and try to get things cleared up with the Japanese government. Two immigration officers were kept outside his hotel room, making sure he would not leave. It is said the man had a meal brought up to him, and he must have taken a nap waiting for the government officials to meet with him later that evening. However, when they arrived, he would not willingly answer the door. So upon getting the hotel to open the room, they discovered the man and all of his belongings had vanished. Just the bed looked a bit messed up. The guards affirmed nobody had entered or left the room all that day, except for the room service. The hotel room was on the sixth floor, so it wasn't possible to escape from the window. I love this story because it makes me think that parallel realities just might be possible. I wonder if in his world, he's waking up on the airplane just as it is landing in Japan, shaking his head clear and thinking, wow, that was a crazy dream I just had. Of course, you know, there's no proof of this story actually happening. But it is a really good creepy it's a, story. It's a creepy story because it just, you know, um, it's kind of like, have you ever seen those things on the internet where people, there will be like a picture, a, a photo from a, a different time and place, but somebody mm -hmm. will be in the photo dressed with current clothing on and everybody's like, look, it's a time traveler. I like, know. People are like, yeah, those are, those are Wayfair glasses. There's no <laughs> possible yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of weird. And, and even though who knows what it really is because it's on the internet. So, but it's still the suggestion of it is fascinating. It would be so cool if we had the ability to do things like that, to travel to different dimensions or to different times, I think that would be so fascinating. But, you know, it's also very dangerous because you could potentially screw things up for history. <laughs> so there's that. But it would be a great way to travel. We wouldn't be crammed into little airplanes. And maybe you have to be in that like 
relaxed grog state in order to vanish. But whatever, this guy was never seen or heard from again. You just don't want to dream of a hot desert before you go to sleep, or you might vanish from here <laughs> and find yourself there without any water. Or an icy cold mountaintop yeah. that would also really Like suck. Antarctica with penguins. Yeah, 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 I don't want to be there. <laughs> I think I'd rather be in a desert than in an ice cold place. Of course, I haven't really researched if it's worse to freeze to death or to die of heat stroke or mm -hmm. lack of water. I'm not sure. I'd have to look into that to decide um, what would be the less of the two evils. Hypothermia is actually the better way to die because you fall asleep. Yes. And you're numb. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually going to talk about that tonight. So I'm so glad oh, you brought that up. Awesome. Yay. Well, I have a few more stories and then okay. I can't wait to hear about your hypothermia story, Yay. Holly. <laughs> Yay. Hypothermia. <laughs> <laughs> There's a famous story you've probably heard about, David Lang. No. He's a farmer who one day disappeared in 1880 from Gallatin, Tennessee. Nope. He was walking across his field and he disappears right in front of his wife hmm. and two kids who was sitting on the porch. Hmm. It was twilight, but supposedly light enough that even a visitor who was driving up the road also witnessed the farmer disappearing in front of him. Wow. Of course, he was driving up in a buggy, you know, not a car. Does that um, make you kind of think about some of those disappearance stories? Um, like, for example, you and I, I think, have talked about the Maura Murray disappearance. Um, she was disappeared out in Massachusetts in 2004. And she disappeared within minutes of um, different witnesses seeing her. So yeah. um, it was like someone came along with just perfect timing and got her. Or it just makes you think, well, maybe she just up and vanished. <laughs> I don't know. That's maybe a theory a, to think about. Yeah, maybe there's a vortex there and she just maybe. walked into a different world. Maybe she did. Maybe she did. Who knows? So after walking just 12 steps off the porch into the field, he abruptly vanished. And of course, his children and wife immediately ran out to where he disappeared, thinking that he just fell into a sinkhole or like an undiscovered well on the property but they searched all night and they got a bunch of neighbors out to do the same thing and they never could find him. Wow. The wife was especially upset that she couldn't even bring herself to talk to reporters about the incident until years later. Hmm. When she said the worst thing was that she could hear her husband yelling for help out in the field. And oh. over here, the voice became less audible, finally fading away. That scares me. That gives me the creeps. That How really gives awful. me the chills. Yeah, How that's absolutely horrible. haunting. Yes, because he can't, he doesn't know what's happening. Mm -mm. All he knows is probably his wife and children and the entire farm has disappeared. Oh my God, that's terrifying. And do you he, think he do you think he fell into a haunted vagina? <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not for his wife's sake. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. Weeks later, a circle appeared around the spot where he vanished and the grass turned brown and cows refused to even graze near where this disappearance happened. Really? I came across a report that stated Fate Magazine published an interview with Sarah Lang, his daughter. She said that one day about six months after the disappearance, she and her brother were drawn to play near the area where her father went missing. Now, if I was a mother, I would not let the children play anywhere near that area. No way. 
She said they were looking for four-leaf clovers, and then they heard a voice calling out to them that sounded like their father. What? She said they tried to communicate, but didn't have any luck with making communication back, and they never heard the voice again. Huh. Years later, the family hired an excavation crew to dig on the site, but they didn't find anything but just a solid floor of granite underneath. There seems to be no records of the family living in the area, though. So somehow things about this story have changed or become twisted, like that game we all played called Telephone. Mm, yeah. So there are skeptics who think this was just part of a fictional story based on inspiration from a similar tale called The Difficulty of Crossing a Field, written back in 1888 by Ambrose Bierce, who wrote it for a newspaper. And this writer tended to produce many works focused on disappearances. So it isn't clear if his story was based on David Lang or the story of David Lang had inspiration from Beers. But hmm. the actual printed story of David Lang was published by mystery novel writer Stuart Palmer in 1953. He said the story was a true story that was told to him directly from Sarah Lang. But there are still many who don't believe it because his story is just too similar to Beers's story. However, coincidences like this do tend to happen, like the books that were written about the unsinkable ship that has an almost identical story about the sinking of the Titanic before it mm. happened. The really weird similarity is that this author Beers also mysteriously disappeared in 1914. Really? He was last seen in Mexico, and the case has never been solved. That's why he's fascinating with disappearances, because he was going to disappear himself. Maybe it was a premonition he knew was going to happen to himself. Maybe. <laughs> but the strangest of all is the coincidence that there's an opera written about the man who crossed the field, the same story, and guess what the composer's name is? Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> nope. Andrew Lloyd Webber. No. His uh, name also just happens to be David Lang. What? Yep. So whatever this mess is, Holly, it's all connected. That's it's all crazy. connected. So he disappears and then he comes back and he writes his own musical about his own work. Yeah. Is that what he's trying to do? I don't know, but let's write a story. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> and then disappear <laughs> and then come back and make it into a movie. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We just happen to share the same likeness and the same name, but we're totally different people. That's right. So this skier, Danny Philippidis, is a Canadian firefighter, and he was on a ski trip with several friends in New York at Whiteface Mountain Resort. This trip was a common event he took annually, so the resort he skied at was familiar to him. But things got really weird when he vanished from the ski resort and reappeared on another mountaintop known for skiing 3,000 miles away in Sacramento, California. He was really disoriented and confused about how he got there, and he was still wearing all of his same ski gear, including his helmet and goggles. And he had no identification on him. So when the story first broke, all sources reported that Danny had been found on this mountain. But later, the story changed to saying he was actually found at the Sacramento airport, wandering around the car rental lot with a new haircut and iPhone. And <laughs> yeah, and he so remembered- So he's running from the law is what's going on. And he remembered- <laughs> He said he remembered a trucker dropping him off and telling the police that he slept for most of the six days. Now, remember, he was gone for six days. Oh. And they said he had a head injury, but how is that possible with him wearing his helmet? 
And of course, no trucker has come forward saying that they helped Danny hitchhike. So it's a little bizarre. He also couldn't describe the truck. He couldn't describe the trucker. He had no recollection of the prior six days. He had no identification on him. And also, the major media networks all immediately pulled their original stories and stopped reporting on him once he was found. Well, that's weird. Why all of a sudden are they not going to report on this guy? Do they exactly. think he's just a nut? Is that why? Or Well, some people think this is just uh, they made up a cover story for him because it was actual paranormal abduction or some other unexplained paranormal phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Interesting. If any of our listeners think they know the trucker or are the trucker, please yes. send an email to firesidephantoms at gmail.com. Do it. That's right. We want to talk <laughs> to you. Yes, yes. <laughs> Over now, good buddy. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Ten four, good buddy. <laughs> so it it just smells fishy and it's a pretty big deal considering they spent over seven thousand man hours devoted to trying to find the guy. Wow. I mean, if this was a hoax, it's pretty convincing. Like, how did he freaking do this? So he just claims not to have any memory. He just showed up in California and got a a ride from a trucker. I don't. And got himself a new phone. I don't believe in any of that. I think it was the original story (laughs) that they all published, that he was actually found on another resort and walking around with his ski gear on and not Mm -hmm. knowing what... I mean, Albert Einstein did predict the theory of wormholes and black holes and all of that stuff. So who's to say that it doesn't happen, you know? These vanishings are weird because it makes you think maybe like there's multiple timelines and if they shift just slightly, they're in a Mm -hmm. different timeline. And then back again, because there's all these stories about people who pop up and vanish and pop up and vanish and even objects, for example... There's a story about a 727 aircraft back in the 1970s, and they were trying to land approaching the Miami airport runway when all of a sudden the whole plane just vanished out of the sky, and the air traffic control people reported no sign of the plane on its tracker. So they sent all the emergency crews out thinking it crashed somewhere, but then 10 minutes later, the plane just pops back into the sky exactly in the spot where it vanished. And it touched down safely with all the people on board. Oh. And when the passengers were questioned about what happened, they didn't recall anything unusual or even that 10 minutes went unaccounted mm-hmm. for. All that they were shocked about was seeing the emergency crew popping out on the runway out of nowhere in front of them as they landed. This is very bizarre because a newspaper reported that the airport quickly called aviation expert Martin Caden who has since passed, but before he could even investigate, he said that men in black suits immediately took over the situation and he was blocked from doing anything further regarding the incident. So what do you think? I mean, are these vanishings, UFO abductions, foul play? Are they wormholes? I think they're all really good, uh, scary stories. And I, I don't know. I will never probably know. I yeah. mean, they're just, or they're really good, no idea. you know, works of fiction that scare the crap out of me. Well, what I've got for you is just one big long story. <laughs> um, so I'm doing the Yuba County five Um, And I picked this one because um, 
there are elements to it that I think are creepy. And it is actually known as America's Diet Love Pass story. Are you, are you familiar with Diet Love Pass? I am. That one I didn't want to do because it is a fantastic story, but it right. has been done to death by every right. podcast on the planet pretty much. So I was like, you know what? We don't need to do Diet Love Pass. Everyone's done it. But I will tell the people listening, if you don't know the story, a very quick synopsis of it. So you can understand some of the similarities between this story and the story I'm going to do tonight, which is the Yuba County Five. Dyatlov Pass is a story of uh, nine Russian hikers in 1959. They decided to go on a multi-day hike up into the Ural Mountains of Russia. Mm -hmm. um, the guy who organized the hike, his last name was Dyatlov, which is why it's called the Dyatlov Pass. A lot of people think that they were in the part of the mountains called Dyatlov Pass. I'm not sure why pass got put on the end of that, but, but it's not. It's the name of the hike leader. So anyway, they go up on, they're all very well experienced hikers. And so they go up into their hike and the day comes when they're supposed to return and they do not. They send out a search party for them and the search party finds their tent um, and it's been cut open from the inside. Yeah, that's creepy. Isn't that Ugh. crazy? Cut open from the inside and nobody's inside the tent, but they find their footprints and their footprints are of them walking away, not running, but walking away from their tent, which is weird because if you're going to just cut the tent open, it would make you think that there's some urgency to get out of the tent. So why would you just then walk away? You would be running. Yeah. Very so, bizarre. It's very weird. So they find their tent and then they continue down. They follow the footprints for a while and they find two of the men. They have nothing on but their underwear and they are dead from hypothermia. And I also, Ugh. yeah, I have also uh, read that their hands were shredded to, to pulp because they were trying to climb up some tree and the tree had broken limbs around it and stuff. And so they find them. And then I think they found a couple other people and some of them had one shoe on. Some of them only had socks on. Like none of them are dressed appropriately for being for the out. Yeah. For being out in below zero temperature. I mean, it's doesn't right. make any sense. So a couple more months go by and the snow melts and they go back out and they find the rest of the hikers. They find three of them that had been down in this ravine um, and they had died of high impact trauma to their chest. The medical examiners said it would be like being in a car accident, that they died of this high impact compression to their chest. Um, so they didn't die of hypothermia, something blunt force killed them. Um, one or two of them had radiation on their clothing and one of the hikers' um, tons was missing, and some of their eyes were missing, and I think that was due to decomposition. Ooh, but that tongue, sounds like cattle mutilation to me. Yeah, it's weird. The ton missing, though, there's only one of them who had a ton missing, and they're not entirely sure why. So the only thing, the Russian investigators, when they were trying to figure out what happened, their investigation was abruptly shut down, and they basically told they were done investigating this case. The reason for it happening, all they said was they all had died because of a compelling natural force. That is the only reason given. But wow. what I find completely freaky about that story is that you have a group of people doing something entirely against logic. 
there is no logic in what they did or why they did it. Yeah. Some people thought maybe there was an avalanche and that would explain some of it, but there was no evidence of an avalanche. So that was right. a theory. And you'd that be did running. You'd be running to and you would be running. avalanche, right? You would be running. So, um, so yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And that's why I find it particularly creepy because an entire group of people, something had to have driven them to do this, to go against what was in their best nature or their best interest to survive in those conditions. So that is very similar to the story I'm going to tell tonight, which is the Yuba County Five. The Yuba County Five is a story of five men. Um, their names are Ben Sterling. He was 29. Jack Hewitt was 24. Ted Weir was 32. Jack Madruga was 30. And Gary Matthews was 25. And these five guys lived in Yuba County, California. Um, they were all good friends, but they all shared one similar thing in common. They all had some kind of mental disability. Gary Matthews had gone into the army in the early 1970s and he got into drugs. He had been arrested twice for assault and had psychotic episodes that eventually caused him to be committed. He eventually was diagnosed with schizophrenia and was discharged from the army. However, he was eventually released from the hospital after doctors believed his medication was helping him to manage his illness. Ben Sterling and Jack Hewitt had been diagnosed with intellectual disabilities, whereas Ted Weir and Jack Madruga were just considered to be slow learners. Mm -hmm. um, despite their intellectual challenges, they were all determined to be high-functioning individuals. They also all really loved basketball, and they were actually part of a uh, team called the Gateway Gators that was at a local center for mentally disabled adults, and that's the team that they played for. In fact, just before they disappeared, they were planning to go on a week-long tournament for the Special Olympics that if they had won, they would have won a trip to Los Angeles and to Disneyland. So they were very excited about this tournament. And actually, the tournament was going to start on February 25th, 1978, but they would not make it to that tournament because the night before is when they disappeared. That brings us to the night of February 24th. 1978 and the boys all got together because they decided to go to Chico which was about 50 miles away from where they lived to watch a college basketball game. So they all piled into Jack Madruga's 1969 Mercury Montego and they took off for the game and they went to the game and after the game was over they went to a place called Bears Market which was located in downtown Chico and the clerk remembered them coming in because she was trying to close up the store and she was super annoyed that they showed up because she was, you know, wanting to get out of there. And they showed up to buy a bunch of stuff. They came in and they bought um, candy and milk and some soda. And then they took off. Flash forward to the next morning and their parents all wake up and they find that the kids have not returned home. So they start calling each other, finding out that none of the boys have come back. And so they start to panic because they know how excited all of them were to go play in this tournament for the chance to go to Disneyland. So they were just like, something's wrong. They should be home. Plus these boys were not typically the type that would be out that late or that far or that much. They were good boys. They were good boys. They, you know, they stayed close to home and this was their clique. It's very unusual for this to be happening with this group of ind individuals. The parents call the police to report them missing. And the police start papering the town with flyers. The newspapers pick up the story and the search begins. Eventually, a forest ranger calls in to report that he has seen the Mercury Montego 
up on a mountain road in the Plumas National Forest in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. Weird. This was two hours east of Chico. If they were going to go back home to Yuba City after the game, they would have headed due south by an hour but they're instead two hours east so the authorities got in their car and they took the windy and steep and rocky road that none of these kids were familiar with up to the snow line and then in the plumas national forest and found their car the boys were not in the car but what they did find were the candy wrappers from the market they had bought the night before it was clear that the car had gotten caught in a snowdrift but it would have been very easy for five grown men to push it out and keep going. That would not have been the reason for them to stop. Plus, when the cops hotwired the car, it started right up, no problems, and it still had a quarter of a tank of gas. So there was no reason for them just to up and leave the car. It did not make sense. Now let's flash back to the back to the night of February 24th, 1978. And there is a guy named Joe Shones. And he is driving up that same mountain road to the Plumas National Forest in his VW buck. He's going up there because he wanted to see how bad the roads were because he was planning to take his family up the next day to his cabin for a ski weekend. So he's just testing the roads out. Um, He gets up there, but he gets stuck in the snow and he can't get his car out. He's pushing and he's trying to can't he can't get it loose, but he starts to realize he's having a heart attack. So he gets in his car and he hunkers down and he just waits because he doesn't know what else he can do. So after a while, he notices another car has shown up and surrounding this car is a group of four men and a woman with a baby. So he calls out to them, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. And this is about um, 1130 at night. And he says that they just get back in the car and they leave. Nobody helps them. Just goes away. So he gets back in his car and he's sitting there and he's waiting. And after a while, another car shows up. It pulls up behind him and it's a pickup truck. And again, he's trying to get help and the pickup truck drives away. No one, nobody helps him. And he's like, what the fuck? And about 1.30 in the morning, he sees, or he hears, I'm sorry, he hears whistling and he hears voices and he sees the beam of flashlights. And again, he calls out, help me, help me, help me. But the only thing that happens is the voices stop and the flashlights go out. Can't see him. He goes and he lays and he lays and after a while, he feels better. So he gets out of his car and he walks down the mountain road back to town and he goes to see his doctor and the doctor's like, yeah, man, you did have a heart attack. Good job getting out of that situation all on your own because no one's going to help you apparently. So he's like, yeah, whatever, whatever that was about. Who knows? A couple days go by and he turns on the news and lo and behold, there's a story about these five boys missing in their 1969 Mercury Montego and he goes wait a minute I saw a 1969 Mercury Montego when I was walking back down the mountain to get help and I saw all those guys I saw them I know what happened this is weird so he calls the police and he tells them his story he's like look I saw four men and another woman and a baby and I saw a pickup truck and I saw the Mercury Montego and they asked them to help me and they didn't help me and the cops were like well you were having a heart attack right and he goes yeah they're like well who knows what you saw he goes okay well maybe the woman that I saw was actually another male 
And the bundle I saw her holding on to, maybe that wasn't a baby. Maybe I just thought it was a baby. And I just assumed that was a woman with a baby. Maybe it wasn't a woman with a baby. Maybe I saw five guys. I don't know, but I can tell you I saw something. And the cops were like, well, thank you for your statement. Whatever, goodbye. So he's like, all right, I've done my due diligence. I said what I needed to say. So the cops had kind of blown him off a little bit because maybe this was just him not knowing what he was really seeing, you know. However flash forward again <laughs> a woman at a store in brownsville which was about 30 miles from where the car was found she calls the police and says yeah i saw those five guys and guess what they were in a red pickup truck what a totally different truck or vehicle she's like i saw them two days after they were reported missing Ew. and they were in a pickup truck and that confirms what Joe Schoen said he saw, he said he saw a pickup truck. Yeah. So there's a confirmation for this witness. And so anyway, she said they came into her store and her manager saw saw them too. He backed her up. He's like, yep, they came in. And the way she described their behavior, what they bought in the, in the store and how they paired off with one another because the group was actually made up of two sets of best friends. So Ted Weir and Jack Hewitt were best friends. She said they were together talking to each other. And then um, Ben Sterling and Jack Madruga were best friends and they were together. Hmm. She said that they had paired off in that manner, which made her a very credible witness to the police. The police were like, yeah, she seems to know what she's talking about because the families are verifying that that's exactly what these boys who they would have been with, what they would have bought, sure. how they were acting. It all yeah. made sense to them. So they think she's a credible witness. Mm -hmm. So it's two days after they've been reported missing and they're in a truck now and not the Mercury. So what the fuck? <laughs> right? So weird. Mm -hmm. A few months later, on June 4th, a group of motorcyclists venture on up into the Plumas National Forest and they happen upon a Forest Service trailer. And when they go inside, they smell something terrible. And it turns out it's the body of Ted Weir. Oh. Yeah. But here's the crazy part. This Forest Service trailer was 19.4 miles from where the Mercury Montego had been found. And stranger still was that Ted had was found laying in the trailer with about half a dozen sheets tucked all around his entire body, which means somebody else would have had to tuck him in to achieve that. But then the craziest thing about this story is that police believed that Ted had been living in that trailer for at least 13 weeks. <laughs> 13 weeks alive. That is he, a messed up story. Yeah. Isn't that weird? So they said his feet were frostbitten, almost gangrenous. His beard had grown out for about 13 weeks worth of beard growth. And he had lost nearly 100 pounds. He actually had died of hypothermia and starvation. But here's the even crazier part about this story, because it keeps getting worse and worse and worse, that the trailer that he was in um, was surrounded by these little sheds. And in each shed, there were supplies. There was enough food for him and all five boys to have lived for what? a year. So they could have easily. just broken into the sheds and well, lived. The, sh the, sh the sheds weren't locked. <laughs> so they, they, they didn't locked. even explore it. They didn't even know. No, they were did. The sheds, no, no, they, they did? did. Because they found some cans of food have been brought into the trailer and opened with a special army uh, can opener. Mm -hmm. So some, some food had been eaten. Plus, there was a propane tank 
he could have used for heat. Plus, in the trailer, there were it was littered with matches, and there were paperback books he could have burned for heat in the fireplace to stay warm. There was no reason for him to die of hypothermia or starvation. It makes no sense. And he had no other injuries that prevented him from, like, moving or... Well, he did have frostbitten feet, so part of me thinks that he probably could not walk. However... Mm-hmm. Um, he, they also don't believe that he was alone because, um, either, uh, Gary Mathias or Jack Manruga would have known how to use that, that, um, army issued can opener because both of them had been in the army at some point. So, and they both had learned to use that type of can opener. And is so, that can opener especially difficult to use? I like don't can know. openers are not that hard, are they? No, I agree. But they did make a point in all the research that I read to say that it was an army, a can opener that the army veterans would have Issue. known how to use. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes no sense for him to not have eaten anything. The window to the trailer had been broken and they believed that they broke the window in order to get into the trailer, but they never bothered to cover up the hole. This group had some intellectual challenges and Ted Weir's family did say, yeah, he maybe wouldn't have eaten the food because he was afraid he would have been accused of stealing it. Oh, God. But it, at on. some point, you have to think that his instinct to eat would have overtaken that logic. Like, you would have think that he would have just had to have eaten and he would have done it. Because Absolutely. the instinct to eat is so intense that you would have, you would have just done it anyway. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. But they did say he did have, he lacked common sense. So, that could be part of the reason. However... We know he wasn't by himself, and we know Gary Mathias was probably with him because they found Gary's tennis shoes in the trailer, but Ted's shoes were missing. And the the use of the special army can opener, Gary would have known how to use. So they believe Gary made it there with him. So there's no reason that Gary couldn't have lit a fire and gotten the food, and perhaps he did get some of the food out for Ted. We don't know. We don't even know why they were there. There's no explanation as to why they were even there. That's what's crazy. An entire group of people all decided to go up in this random mountain they'd never been to and hang out. There was a partially melted candle on the table next to where Ted was laying. So he had lit a candle. <laughs> It'll work a match. So it didn't really make any sense to them why he would be um dead from these type of circumstances they also found his wallet with cash in it his ring and his necklace were found they also found a gold watch that was missing its crystal but it did not belong to ted nor did it belong to any of the other group members so they do not know where it came from it could have been a forest ranger that left it nobody really knows for sure and was all his stuff with him or was it spread out somewhere else they found this like somewhere else in the I think it was all or... in the trailer. No, I think it was all okay. in the trailer. And there was also heavy duty forest clothing for him to put on and wear to keep him warm, but he was wear, wearing really lightweight clothing. Like nothing none of the guys were were wearing things that they should have been wearing up into the mountains when it's snowing and cold. Like they were not dressed for this. A few days later, police went up there and they were combing the mountains again and they did find two more bodies. Those of Ben Sterling and Jack Manruga. They were about four and a half miles away from the trailer. They were found on opposite sides of the road from one another. They were 11.4 miles from where the car was found. Their bodies had been eaten away by animals. 
but there were enough remains to determine that they had died of hypothermia. So they might have been uh, trying to go get help or something, and they were walking to go get help. Um, or were they walking away from the car? Maybe they never made it that far from the car to begin with. No one knows. It's the weirdest shit. The police thought perhaps that they were together when they passed away. The speculation is that one of them wanted to stop and rest and fell asleep, which, as you said earlier, Carol, is the last stage of hypothermia before you die. Mm-hmm. And the other just stayed with his friend and died of the same fate. Um, a few days later, Jack Hewitt's father found his son's backbone under a bush. Ew. It was two miles northeast of the trailer. Uh, they also found his shoes and jeans, and a sheriff found his skull about 300 feet away, which was later confirmed by dental records to belong to Jack Hewitt. So it was also determined that Jack Hewitt had died of hypothermia as well. They do also believe that Jack Hewitt may have made it to the trailer as well, because I think his body was found north of the trailer, whereas I think the other two were found a little bit south of the trailer. That's a really sad story. It's sad. I've got more. I've got more. Oh, oh. Um, Yeah. So the police do not think that they were lost. They said most times when people are lost, they walk in a circular pattern. These guys were walking in a purposeful motion like they knew where they were going. And was there like any light source on top of the mountain that they could be, you know, walking towards? Was there like anything on there that could have been like... Not that I read. A destination for them? No. Not that I read. Um, it could have been there was speculation that perhaps they were going to go visit one of the boys' friends in another town, and they were taking this mountain road to get there. But when they interviewed that friend, the friend was like, I haven't talked to him in years, and we, we had no plans to get together, so that doesn't make any sense either. Nobody knows why they went out there. None of them, like I said, were familiar with that area. Um, most of them did not even like to be outdoors. The only one who was not found was Gary Mathias. And he was without his schizophrenia medication. So they distributed his picture to mental institutions, hoping that he would eventually end up at one. But to this day, he never has. Ooh, that is adding an element to the pot. It is. A schizophrenic patient without his medication. It's true. However, there, none of these guys died of foul play. It was all natural causes. So he didn't murder anybody. But he disappeared, and he could have died out there, too, and the animals got him, and they just never found his remains. They were looking for his glasses because he wore glasses, and they're like, we don't think the animals would have eaten his glasses, but they never found them. The families believe foul play has got to be involved. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows about the truck. Who was in the truck? Why was there a truck? We have two people saying there was a truck, and these boys are associated with a truck. So who is that? And then the woman with the baby, yeah. that, got, that got kind of discounted. However, I did read in one of the articles when I was researching this that um, one of the relatives of one of the boys who's still living posted on social media that in the car was found baby clothes and a blanket for a baby. But no one else, nowhere else have I read that. So I'm not sure if that's true or not or a conjecture or what that is. But that would validate a woman with a baby. So yeah. no one ever found a woman with a baby. No one ever found the truck. Nobody knows. Like Dyatlov Pass, why did those hikers run into the middle of the uh, snow and ice that night? Why did the Yuba County Five disappear up into the mountains of the Sierra Nevada mountain range that night? Nobody knows. 
the families were like, we think that when they left the bear market, they saw something they shouldn't have and somebody chased them up that mountain or someone hijacked their car and took them up that mountain. Mm -hmm. Something happened to bring them up there and nobody knows why. And they also, one of the mothers said, if they had heard the guy having the heart attack yelling for help, my son would have helped him no problem. Like he absolutely would have done that. Nobody can figure it out. And that's why it's such a compelling story because it has no logical conclusion to it. Just like Dyatlov Pass, it has no logical conclusion to it. It just is what it is. The lady with the baby is the worst feeling. Yeah. Like yeah. what was a lady with a baby doing up there on if the that's, mountain? If that's indeed what he saw. He said four guys, a woman and a child, but he said he just saw a person of smaller stature holding a bundle next to its body, he assumed it was a woman with a baby. So it could have been that he just saw five guys. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I just read that other random tidbit that there was baby clothes in there, plus the same article said that shell casings were found next outside the car. Again, I never read that anywhere else. So I don't know if that's true or not. That is the story of the Yuba County Five. That is super twisted and freaky. <laughs> I know. As I was researching it, I kept getting chills. Like, I'm like, there's something wrong here. There's something, something happened to those guys. And I just have no clue what it is. Nobody does. That's why, you know, back mountain roads, places where you're not familiar with, you just. Country roads. Yeah. Take just me stay home away. Just stay among the, the living. Place I don't belong. <laughs> West Virginia, Yuba <laughs> County. Take me home. Country roads. You're welcome. All right. Okay. Let's do this. Well, oh, wait, I can't say that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'll wash my hands, I'll open the door, and then I'll flash it and run before I get sucked out there because I just know it's going to happen. Thanks for the visual, Holly. So Torrid is spelled T-A-U-R-E-D. You can put that in somewhere. <laughs> that's what she said. No, that's <laughs> awesome. That's awesome, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> nice one written back in 1888 by Ambrosia Beers, who wrote it for a newspaper. Wait, is it is it Ambrose or Am Ambrosia? Ambrosia. It oh, really? I don't know. Is it, it might be Ambrose. Isn't that an aphrodisiac? It's an E. Yeah, I think it's I think it's Ambrose Beers, I think. Okay. I think it's I'm going to say that yeah. again. So I believe it's a dude. I think I feel like Ambrosia is a lady's name. Oh, a sexy oh. lady. <laughs> that's what he said. Yes, that's what he said. <laughs> He's got name fluidity, Josh. Shit, it is so hard to speak. It Do you is. Know that? It yeah. is. I've been practicing my stories. And one thing I realized is that I have to use my mouth to its fullest capacity. Don't make any jokes, Josh. Oh. I've got to. <laughs> 3,000 miles away in San can't say fucking Sacramento. Okay. <laughs> Fuck. I won't say who, who did it, but somebody went to a dentist and they had their mouth open and you know how hard it is to keep your mouth open? Yeah. Well, the dentist said, oh, you know, if you could just keep your mouth right there, that is so perfect. <laughs> Here, I've got something that you can rest your teeth on. <laughs> 
as the flames die down, do remain undaunted. Though all hitchhikers are ghosts, and all dolls are definitely haunted. Hey guys, be sure to follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at Fireside Phantoms. If you have a spooky story you would like to share with us, send it to firesidephantoms at gmail.com and you may hear it on a future episode.